Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everybody. It's... um Really good to be with you all. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Mike, and uh, along with Julia and a great, great team here, we get the privilege of, of serving and leading in this Balaam site context, and I also am involved in discipleship overseeing across the different sites, um, so it's, uh, it's really, really good to be with you. Uh, Westside and Battersea, also welcome to you this morning as you join us. It's really good to have you as well and all those online. So we have been doing a, a series called Tough Questions for the last four weeks. This is the fourth week. And our goal really in doing that is to take the questions that people have seriously, is to uh, allow people to ask good questions that hopefully we can respond to with good answers. Um, and, and the reason why we want to do that is because questions that people have may potentially act as barriers to uh, engaging with what Christians believe or uh, act as a barrier to engaging with God directly. But also questions are a point of integrity in people's lives, hearts, and minds, where we can't just say to people, believe, without first taking seriously the questions that people have. So that's why we're doing this. We want to to do just that, take the questions seriously that our culture has, but also that Christians themselves have. If we're honest, these are also questions that we need answers to that can also act as barriers for us. And that can also, if answered, become points of confidence uh, for us in our trusting of God uh, and following of Jesus. So that's why we're doing this series. And we've had three great talks, right? Uh, uh, some of you have been to some of the different talks. Uh, in week one, we had Amy or Ewan come and speak to us. It was incredible. Uh, week two, we had someone else. Um, uh, it was me. And then week three, we had Tom Price last week uh, speaking to us on a really good topic of how can you say this one way in a world of many faiths. And then this week, um, we're going to look at a slightly different kind of question, but I think a question that really resonates with us uh, as people. The question is, surely I can be good without God. Surely I can be good without God. Or said another way, can we be good without God? Now, I was... um, I was walking through Battersea Park uh, yesterday, and it was a glorious day, very different kind of London day uh, than today, and it, it kind of uh, tricked us into thinking summer was almost here. I was enjoying it, I was walking through, and there were hundreds of people just sitting uh, next to the, the dams, the lakes, I don't know what, what's what, but um, body of water, and, uh, and just milling around and having picnics, having a great time. And uh, obviously, being aware that I was speaking today, I-, I was asking myself the question, does the average person in Battersea Park today care about what I'm going to be touching on tomorrow? Does the average person in Battersea Park care about the question of goodness and God? Does the average Londoner, does the average Londoner care about this question? And as I was thinking about it, I-, I realized that actually, yes, in fact, I think we really do deeply care uh, about goodness and about questions of moral goodness. Despite protestations that morality can be kind of a straitjacket for us, we actually all really care about being a good colleague. We care about being a good son, or a good daughter, or a good spouse, uh, or a good friend, or a good tenant. 
We care about these things. We want to be recognized and seen to be good. I don't know many people that would say, yeah, I'm happy to be the amoral, anti-moral uh, person that no one enjoys or likes. That's just not the way we seem to be, generally speaking, as human beings. We care deeply about being good. We care deeply about the question of goodness and morality for a whole range of different reasons. And so I realized, yes, the average Battersea Park person, I think, does care very deeply about this conversation, which makes this question really important. So imposing this question rather provocatively, surely I can be good without God, what we're really posing is a question about objective moral values and duties. And by objective, what, what I'm talking about is the things that are discovered rather than invented. When we're talking about objective, we're saying things that we find outside of ourselves that are to be discovered rather than the things that we create from within ourselves and project outwards. We are not saying I can be good without belief in God in this question. We're talking about a goodness without reference to God as an explanation or necessary condition for being good. That's what this question is really about. Not about belief in God and if I can be good without believing in God, but about the necessity of God for being good. Our values we hold dear and guide our lives created by social convention. For example, like the side of the road we drive on, uh, depending on which country that you're in. Are there expressions of personal preference? For example, I like dark chocolate, and you don't. Dark chocolate should win. Or are values independent of our preferences? Is there a kind of higher level that we look to in order to get to our discussion about moral values? There are really three options regarding moral values and how we get to agreeing on them. The first is theism, that moral values are grounded in God. The second is humanism, moral values are grounded in human beings. And the third is nihilism, moral values have no ground at all, they're just illusory. There's really three options. And because I, I don't expect anyone will be interested in the third option of nihilism, wouldn't make for an interesting talk, I could say nothing at all at that point. I'm going to kind of take this as a conversation between those two first options, theism and humanism. The distinction between moral values being grounded in God or being grounded in human construction or preference. So I want to try and do this by looking at three things, and then hopefully you'll be kind to me in the Q&A um, section afterwards. I want to look at the pursuit of goodness or pursuing goodness. I want to ask a few questions that might challenge this question around goodness, and then I want to give a little overview of a Christian response of how we think about goodness. So firstly, pursuing goodness. Why do we ask this question? Why do we ask the question about uh, goodness and God, or about being good at all? Well, firstly, I think the question might come and could realistically come from a good place, concerned for the good of people and the world. I think that is a place that people can ask this question from. And if that is you, I would say, and I think we would all say, that is fantastic. We all need a little bit more goodness in our world, right? We do. This is a good place to ask it from. We are inspired by those who live big, selfless lives. Moral examples, examples inspire and challenge us regularly. I think about those viral pictures of the Ukrainian president in a kind of bunker with, uh, with his bulletproof vest on and, and helmet on, and how uh, around the world we've, we've been inspired by the, this virtue, this, this person who's been able to stay and willing to stay 
in the midst of hostility and danger. Goodness is attractive and it's praiseworthy to us as people. And just on a personal note, I think for myself, I've, I've kind of wondered my whole life long, what is the good way? What is the right way? Even from when I was really young, I've, I've, I've wondered and been concerned about and been anxious about what the right thing to do is. Like, what, what is the good thing? What would be the good way that would result in the best possible outcome for all those involved? I really have been concerned about this. Julia can attest, it's still a concern. If this is you, if you are concerned about how to bring a little bit more goodness into the world, how to follow the good way, you need to know you're in really good company. Everyday people, as well as great teachers and moral philosophers, had pondered the same question, how shall we live? How shall we live? In fact, it's one of the, one of the four big questions that we have to grapple with when it comes to human existence. The first is, where have we come from? The question of origin. The second is, why am I here? The question of purpose. The third is this question, how am I supposed to live? The question of morality. And the fourth is, where do we go once we die? The question of destiny. These four questions, origin, purpose, morality, destiny, are the four big questions that we need to answer as human beings. They force themselves on us as important to answer. So you're in good company because this has been a common pursuit of all people um, over a long period of time to answer this very question. There's a second place this question might come from, which, which is this. It might be asked out of disbelief or incredulity by well-meaning, non-believing friends. They actually aren't sure that God is necessary at all to lead a good life. Why must God be in the picture when we're talking about goodness? I'm happy as I am. Why complicate things with God? Let's just be kind to each other. I don't need God to be good. After all, just look at Christians, the church. It doesn't seem to work very well anyway. Fair enough. In a place of turbulence. Maybe in a time of darkness. You might feel like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who says, My feet almost slipped when I considered the situation of all those that don't bother with God, they seem to be fine. They seem to be prospering. They seem to be doing really well. Why do I constantly live in angst, worrying about God and how to please God and how to live a good life, when those who don't worry about those things seem to have a really great life anyway? That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 73. It's what the whole psalm is about. It's a really honest engagement with this. Why bother with all this God stuff? Many people don't, and they seem to be fine. However you approach this question today, it's helpful to start by acknowledging its huge importance for human beings. Why is it important? Because although we make our decisions, our decisions then make us. We make our decisions, but our decisions then make us. We're always becoming something. Our actions and behaviors have an impact on who we are becoming, the person that engages with the world and the people around us. There was a time in the 20th century where a newspaper was inviting a whole bunch of public intellectuals to write in and to say what's wrong with the world. A man called G.K. Chesterton, a really um, funny, smart man, uh, wrote back and, and just with a one-line response, he said, Dear sirs, I am what's wrong with the world. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. 
I am what's wrong with the world. If we can take that seriously and we can engage with that sentiment, I think we're starting to get somewhere. Who are we becoming? Who am I? So there's different places that we ask the question from. And it's helpful to recognize where you are in that particular space. Where are you approaching this question from? And I want to keep that in mind as I think about two challenges that I want to put uh, to a person who may ask this question from a more skeptical and incredulous point of view. So two challenges that I want to bring, um, possibly at the level of assumptions around this question. Here's the first challenge. It's the challenge of truth, the truth challenge. See, what I think may be going on here is there's a slight confusion of priorities in this question. Here's the problem. It sounds like someone is saying, I'm happy to live my life, a good life, without ever really considering whether Christianity is true or not. That is, the person is more concerned about usefulness than truthfulness. Is Christianity going to be of any use to me in my life? Is it going to be useful in any way? Rather than saying the more fundamental or basic question or asking that is, is it true? Because we, then it speaks to a deeper concern of our relationship to the category of truth. How important is truth to us? Where are we starting? Are we starting at the level of the pragmatic, its use? Are we starting at the level of truth? Is this true? How do we know? Do we care if something is true or not? Atheist philosopher, uh, he's actually a philosopher of mind. I don't know what that means. It's a really cool uh, title to have. But uh, atheist philosopher of mind, Thomas Nagel, hints, hints at this reality in his book, The Last Word. He puts it like this. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I really appreciate his honesty. He's written a number of, of fascinating books, and he's incredibly honest about his, his, where he comes from, the emotions associated with his belief. And I, I really admire that. I hope I'll be as open and honest about my own doubts uh, as a, in my position as a Christian. But does our suspicion of God result from truthful inquiry or wishing God's existence away? Do we not want there to be a God? And if we don't want there to be a God, why? What might be the reasons for us want, wanting to wish God's existence away? Is it that it might be inconvenient? Is God inconvenient? Is, is God intrusive? Are we scared about, wanting, about losing our freedom if we perhaps say yes to the reality of God? These are all good things to acknowledge. They're all understandable. But are we, are we aware of what we bring to this question of why we may not want God to exist? And so here's the first challenge. It's a truth challenge. In asking this question, we may be tempted to be thinking more about the use that Christianity might add to my life rather than its truthfulness, which leads us to a deeper challenge, if you can believe it. I want to I take this a little bit deeper, and we're going to have to just 
we're going to have to really think for a moment here. And I hope that that's okay. I want us to, my teacher used to say, put your thinking caps on. I don't want to sound like a teacher, but I also am a teacher. So put your thinking caps on for just a second. The question is about goodness. It's about the good life. But who decides what good is? Who gets to decide what good is? We're saying, surely I can be good without God. But who decides what good is? It is true, and we need to say this really clearly. One does not need to believe in God to live morally. People of all faiths and none can live what we ordinarily refer to as a decent, morally good life. That's absolutely true. We all know people like that. Yes, I know many. This is true. And the reason I think as a Christian that I believe this is possible and can happen is because we read in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that all people are made in the image of God. All people are made in God's image. We reflect the image of a good God. So whether we acknowledge the reality of God's existence or not, I believe we still carry something of an ability to reflect that God and his nature to the world around us. This is absolutely possible, even without an act of commitment to the belief in God's reality. As we have said, the question is not about belief in God, but what account can be provided to ground the moral values known and obeyed around us. Said another way, if there is no God, who exactly is it that decides on the good life for the rest of us? If there is no God, who has the authority to decide on the good life for the rest of us? So if we take God out of the pictures, what are the solutions that we have? You'll hear some of the popular ones that we give today. Some say that with, we don't need God. Biological evolution is enough to explain where we have arrived today in terms of our moral values. What we consider goodness is simply what has emerged as a result of a mindless, unguided process called biological evolution. Good is what promotes survival. The good is what promotes the continuing survival of the human species. That is what good is. But if biological evolution is concerned primarily with survival and genetic replication and not arriving at truth, why should I believe the morality it produces is true or false for that matter? Another answer that's given today in the place of God is called utilitarianism or, or consequentialism. We know goodness by measuring the consequences of actions. So we don't need God. We don't need kind of a transcendent arbiter. All we need is to look at the consequences of an action to know if it's good or not. Consequentialism, the consequences. So here, the belief is whatever leads to the maximum amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. And the maximum amount of happiness that is produced can be equated for and as the good. But how do we come to this conclusion? How do we arrive at this as the definition of good? If the choice is between my happiness and my pleasure at the expense of another's or society's, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to choose my happiness and my pleasure every single time. Why wouldn't I? Especially if it's about survival. I need to survive. I'm going to choose what helps me to survive. Utilitarians cannot explain why group happiness ought to be more important than individual happiness. It's just an arbitrary emphasis. And one other answer that's popular today in the place of moving God out of the picture is science. Saying science can fully ground moral values without any reference to a God. 
The American atheist Sam Harris has, has argued this exactly in his book, The Moral Landscape, in 2010. But the problem is that he, you always, he does this, and, and we always have to eventually bring in unscientific moral assumptions in order to do this. So in Sam Harris's book, he emphasizes something called well-being, that ultimately, scientifically, we just point to well-being as, as ultimately factually good, and we orient ourselves towards that, and that's enough. That's what goodness is. But he can't ground why well-being ought to be the thing that we orient ourselves towards. That's not a scientific statement. It's a moral statement. Alistair McGrath puts it like this. He says, science can refer you to the wonder of the physical realm, but it cannot provide an interpretation of its bare facts. As the great scientist Albert Einstein once commented, science can only ascertain what is, not what should be. Science can only ascertain what is, not what should be. This is known um, as the is-ought problem. How do you get from the bare, the bare facts of what is in creation to what we ought to do as human beings? And philosophers have recognized that it is impossible to get from an is to an ought. So we have a problem. So where does this leave us? Where do we find our ourselves at the end of all of this? If we just briefly look at a few of the different options if God weren't in the picture. Well, should we produce coherent ethical systems, how do we know which one is right? Even if we were able to do that, how would we know which one to choose if they contradict? Imagine, for example, that members of one group have good reasons to say that it's good to love your neighbor. And then you have members of another significant group who have good reasons to say it's good to eat your neighbor. Obviously, both can't be true. Both can't be true, but who decides? Without an ultimate standard for good, what we are left with is mere personal preference. The category of good and evil dissolves altogether. We have actions that are either beneficial or hurtful on a personal or social level, but nothing more. We can never actually say that something is absolutely wrong. All I can say is I would prefer that the world were not like that. Julian Beghini is a, an atheist. He wrote a short introduction to atheism, and he said it like this, and then we're going to come into to finish shortly after this. If there is no single moral authority that is no God, we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say I have made a factual error. But we know that truth and goodness matter. We do. Atheists know this. Christians know this. Those of many and no faith know this. They're not imaginary. They're not just reducible to personal taste alone. We really want to say that some things are absolutely right and some things are absolutely wrong. And so is there anything the Christian faith might be able to say in response to some of these things in all of this? What, what might the Christian faith Say, I want to take the next three, four minutes to share some of those thoughts, and then hopefully I can expand a bit more uh, on, in the Q&A. The first thing the Christian faith would say is that we can speak of goodness, Christians can speak of goodness, because it is grounded in a good God. God's being itself is the source for all reality and morality. 
God's being is the place that produces those realities. See, the good is not constructed by people, but designed and given by God. The good is not constructed, it's designed and it's given by God. So think about this. If I were to take this iPad that I were uh, speaking from for a moment and I were to use it as a Frisbee uh, and throw it across the room and hopefully Andy could catch it or someone, someone online could catch it if it were that um, impressive of a throw. And uh, we would know that the result of that would be disastrous. I would no longer have an iPad. Why? Because I'm not using it as it's been designed to use. The reality is we, we find... Uh, we find a sense of goodness, we find a sense of purpose, we find a sense of freedom as we function within our intended design, when we use things as they are supposed to be used. And so goodness in the Christian perspective, based on that kind of idea, means we, living accordance to the designer's good design. Goodness is living in accordance with designer's good design. So what is this design? What is it that God expects from us? And here's where we get right to the heart of Christianity's uniqueness. We need to listen in for a second to a conversation Jesus has with a well-intentioned moralist asking this very question. In Mark chapter 10, a person approaches Jesus, and actually it's quite dramatic. Uh, It doesn't just approach, we, we read this. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Notice this person believes that particular actions are able to uh, merit eternal blessings. A certain level of morality can get to this point of inheriting that. How does Jesus reply? No one is good but God alone. It doesn't seem at first like Jesus is answering this person, but actually he is. What the moralist needs to see is not how good he needs to be, but to notice the lack of goodness, the lack of ability for goodness in his own life. In his question, he was actually closer to the answer than he realized. Why do you call me good? Jesus said. It's not an evasion of the question. It's trying to draw his attention to the answer. No one is good but God alone. Jesus is trying to say, in calling me good, you are equating me with God. And you are right. The way that you are going to inherit eternal life is not through something that you can perform, but through me. You will inherit through me alone. So the question we're answering today actually begs another question. How good is good enough? Surely I can be good without God. How good is good enough? We can try to climb the moral mountain by our efforts. And if we try, well, there's only two possible results. One is if we get a little higher than others, we get to superiority, moral superiority, where we look down on others on the mountain and we say, see, you're not quite where we are. Or the other is a potential crushing inferiority. We see others above us, so when we fail, we feel like we'll never get there, we'll never be good enough. Where do we go when we failed? How do we remove guilt? What do we do with these things? See, in the Christian faith, we don't talk about climbing up to get to God through our good efforts or our moral works. We speak about God coming down to meet us. God reaches down to a humanity that could never quite be good enough, that can't inherit eternal life on their own merits and their own goodness. God comes down the mountain to us, so to speak. 
Dorothy Sayers was a, was a writer, an Oxford academic, and uh, she wrote uh, mystery novels, detective novels, and she wrote a whole series called the Lord Peter Whimsy Detective Series. And uh, people who love her works have noticed something really interesting um, as what has happened as she's been writing. Uh, in the novels, the main character is a person called Lord Peter Whimsy, and he's a detective, a sleuth. And he's a single man who lives quite a, a in a sense, a sad life, as shown um, by the stories that are told. And what those that love these books have noticed is like, is as the series has progressed, another character appears on the scene. So Dorothy Sayers herself, the author, was an Oxford academic, one of the first women ever to go to Oxford, and she was a writer of these mystery novels. In the series itself, in the books, appears a woman called Harriet Vane. And this woman is an Oxford academic, and she writes mystery detective novels. Harriet Vane falls in love with Lord Peter Whimsey, and they get married in this series. It's quite touching. What people have noticed is that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she had created, into the world of her character, Lord Peter Whimsey, and seen that he was broken and alone. And she decided to write herself into the story to solve the problem. This is what God does. God looks into the world that he has created, sees the devastation, he sees the disaster, he sees the deficit, and he writes himself in. He writes himself into the story. In many other ways and religions and faiths would say do, but the Christian faith says done. We don't meet God at the top of a ladder, but at the foot of a cross. This is called grace. This is called grace. The gift of relationship with God. The relief of a clean conscience. The power to live for God. So we're not going to get there on our own. How good is good enough? God comes down the mountain and he reaches out to us in grace to give us relationship with himself. I'm going to finish here. And just to say, I think if we're honest, in our heart of hearts, I think we know that we don't quite measure up, even to the standards we apply to others and to ourselves. But what do we do with this? To whom do we go? Where do we turn? I think in the Christian faith, we have a powerful response uh, to those realities. Thank you so much. I'm going to leave it there. Okay, there's a number of questions, Mike. And um, I would really not want to be in your position right now. Um, okay, the first one. I'm going to mash up two questions, one from Bathsy and one from Balaam. Um, Isaiah 45, verse 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And the question is, I've always been taught that there is no darkness or evil in God. How should we read this verse? And sort of off the back of that is, how can God be good if there's such a thing as hell? Can you, can you read the verse again? Yeah. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So how should we read that verse? I think, I mean, it's a huge question. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all of that uh, right now. The second part was about hell. Yeah. How can God be good if a hell exists? Yeah. Okay, so that, I feel like that touches more on the suffering question from a few weeks ago. So I'm, I might leave that aside uh, for now. If we get there, we get there. But um, I think in terms of God creating the light and the darkness, the, 
the ancient understanding of God is that God is responsible for everything that occurs and that happens in the world. Everything can be attributed to God's action in the world. But I think we also, we need to be careful, and I don't know the exact context of that Isaiah passage. I would need more time to go and, and look at it. But I do think we need to be careful about what we pluck out of, out of Scripture um, in terms of context. There are different sections of Scripture that are more poetic. There are different sections of Scripture that are more uh, like a complaint type of thing from humans' point of view. And we need to be careful of reading a prescription from a description. So are we reading something that is describing something like an experience of a reality that makes us feel something toward God? Many of the Psalms are written from that place uh, of feeling devastation and anger and pain and feeling like God's abandoned or God has caused this devastation. That's a very common human emotion. And the Bible does actually give voice and allow space for voice on those very difficult um, realities that we experience as human beings. We need to distinguish a description of what a human experience is from a prescription given of this is what God is like. Um, and I, I do think that there needs to be that careful distinction made as we're thinking about it, because we know it's not possible, I don't think, logically speaking, for God to be both a source of evil and good in the sense of directly causing both. I think that would contradict the claim of Scripture that God is good and other parts of the Bible that says that God never tempts anyone to evil. So we've got to be careful to let Scripture interpret Scripture and let major sections of the Bible that are prescriptive help us to understand the ones that are more are descriptive. Great. Sorry, um, I didn't get to the whole question. Okay, this is another mashup of two questions. Um, we all know people who aren't followers of Jesus, who are so kind and good, and we all know people, Christians, who maybe aren't as kind and good. Doesn't that prove mm. that goodness is possible without God? Okay. This is, this is a really fair question. It's a really good question. We all have examples of people in our lives who don't follow any kind of faith and yet are in a sense, seemingly more moral and more committed to moral life than Christians are. Mm. Yes, anyone experienced that? Uh, I, I have experienced that. How is that possible? Well, I hinted at the answer in part in, in my talk where I spoke about us being made in the image of God. So I think the propensity and the capacity for good is there, is, is built into what it means to be a human being. There's, a, in a sense, an, an ethical reality, a moral dimension to being human apart from whether we ever direct allegiance to God. Um, or not. I think, I think that, that that is possible. Um, and I think one other thing to say is, you never know what that Christian would have been like had they not met Jesus. Um, so you think that they're bad now, how would they have been, <laughs> how would they have been, you know, if they'd, if they'd never, not, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you don't know. We have no idea how much work has already been done. We don't know how much work God has already done and how far God has already brought them. On the journey. And so we need to be really careful about judging other people's journeys and the sincerity of their journeys. We love to make judgments at others. We don't love it when the judgments turn back on us and we have to assess our own lives and our own standards. And, and so I think there, there is a genuine sense of, I get it, I understand. But at the same time, we also need to ask the question, well, how am I doing and how has God already done in this person's life? There may be something I can't see that's hidden. Thanks, Mike. That's great. Okay, um, I'm really sorry to not have got around to your question if, if, there are, if I haven't. There are so many questions. Yeah, we have got the triple 20 tonight, so bring those questions tonight. Um, final question. I hear a lot of my friends saying that I don't think I'm that bad. 
I'm quite kind, so why do I actually need God? Okay, so I, I think what might be smuggled in a little bit as an assumption in this question is that, again, this thing of usefulness and truthfulness, is something true, I think, is the greater question. If something is true, then that means that by living in the truth of that thing, our lives are better off, because by aligning ourselves to truth, life is better. Um, things work as they're supposed to work, hopefully flourishing results as a result of following something that is true. And so again, the question is not, am I kind enough, or am I good enough, um, or, am, or whatever else enough I might need to be. Again, the question comes back to, does God exist? Does God exist? Is it true, or is it not? And what reasons do I have for believing that this is true or not true? So I want to bring us back to the more important question of truth. Is it true? Is it not? That, that is the, the really important thing um, to say. And then the final thing to say is actually, when it comes to the question of moral goodness, I think we can agree it's massively important. It's a, it's a hugely important discussion. But I think sometimes when people say that kind of a question, I'm good enough or kind enough, it almost assumes that, re that reality in life is about being good or moral. And actually, the Christian vision for life is that morality would be swallowed up in something so much bigger, so much greater, that life actually doesn't become reducible to being a good enough or a kind enough, but it's actually about something so much greater, which is knowing God, being in relationship with God. Morality almost plays second fiddle. It, morality is like an overflowing uh, afterthought when it, when it comes to the central reality of being in relationship with God. And that is what empowers us to want to live a moral life at the end of the day. It's like our moral taste buds change when you come into relationship with God. Have you ever tried to drink orange juice after brushing your teeth? You don't want that anymore. The reality is that once you've come into relationship with God through Jesus, our moral taste buds change so that we start increasingly, though not perfectly, to desire um, what God would have us to desire to follow God's will. It's not an arrogance thing. It's a grace thing. We've been brought in by grace, and we start to long to, to follow and to obey God. It's really good. Really good. Thank you so much, Mike. Good job. Um, why don't I get all the bands up at Battersea, at Westside, and here at Ballam? We're going to respond in worship um, this morning. Um, why don't, wherever you are, why don't you stand at Battersea, Westside, here in Ballam? I think that just that point that Mike ended on just there was just this is part of a bigger question and a part of a bigger story of grace. And um, why don't we just pray? Jesus, thank you that actually it's not down to us. And I thank you that that just lifts the pressure off us. And Father, would we be people who... Um, have that taste of toothpaste in our mouths so that we don't want to do anything bad? Would that be the driving force? Would we know that we're so consumed by your grace? And just if there's anyone here this morning that just feels like they're not good enough, that they're not um, worthy of your grace, we just say thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way for every single person to come into your presence. And so we, yeah. We just say, would you move amongst us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers. 